the GM Yearbook. I'm Matt. And I'm Jim. We're here to take you on a journey through the years as we explore the music in our lifetime and the impact it's had on us and the world we've lived in. Welcome to version 1973. Decade of some of the best music of all time. (laughs) Without a doubt. You're not wrong there. We have loved going back to the 70s on this show. These earliest years are a little different for us, though, because we are relying on history and not firsthand knowledge because Matt, you and I, we were running around in diapers in 1973. (laughs) Okay. But before we get into the music of 1973, the Reaper is making his weekly visit. Yes. Let's first show respect to those we lost. All right. Well, the first person we're going to talk about is Ron Pigpen McKernan. He was one of the original founders and the original frontman of the Grateful Dead. There's no denying the impact Ron McKernan had on the followers of the dead. He had more of a garage rock style that didn't always fit in with the jamming with the band, but his performance of Turn On Your Love Light was often the closer for dead shows and could stretch for 15 to 30 minutes long. He wasn't into the psychedelics like the rest of the band, and he preferred whiskey and wine. Unfortunately, a little too much, he would wind up with some serious health problems damaging his liver and sadly dying of a gastrointestinal hemorrhage. He became another tragic member of the 27 Club. And Jim Croce was just starting to break out when he and five others were killed when their plane crashed during takeoff. An hour prior, they were playing a show at Northwestern State University in Louisiana and were on their way to another tour stop in Texas. There's a lot of Croce songs that have stayed with me my whole life. I'm sure Mm -hmm. they have with you as well, Jim. When Kim and I were choosing wedding songs, we ended up with two, and Time in a Bottle was one of them. Oh, good song. And then we had Graham Parsons. We've been starting the show far too often with these similar tales. Graham Parsons was another victim of overdose who had a stellar career under his belt by the time he was 26 years old. He'd been a member of both the Flying Burrito Brothers and the Birds, and he was enjoying a solid solo career. I think I had one of his songs on one of the earlier versions of this show, yes. 1971 maybe. His music influenced many of the indie artists that you were listening to in the late 2000s, Matt. I, I really believe this. And I'm not going to tell the story here, but I'd recommend looking it up. And there's a movie about how after he died, his best friend stole his body and burned it at Joshua Tree, California. It was a place he found solace and would return to for reflection. And even though he didn't really have an effect on our lives too much, I'm going to pour one out today for Gene Krupa. When I worked with the older generation at the adult day service in the 1990s, I learned a lot about Gene Krupa. He was one of the greatest drummers to ever exist. He was probably one of the first five musicians I punched into YouTube when that platform launched. And I recommend anybody go out, look up Gene Krupa. He was amazing. Okay, Matt. So we're going to put the Reaper behind us. And we're going to talk about 1973. We have to say, you know, in these big years that we talk about, there's not an exception here for 1973. Mm. I guess the only thing we need to ask ourselves is where do we start? Uh, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. There's 10 songs on the album, so there's five each. Uh, I guess the show's done. (laughs) I'm down with that. Show done. Good night, everybody. (laughs) Honestly, dude, that album had a huge presence in my life. And I've actually flirted with fatigue. I've listened to it so many times. So let's start right off. What's your take with the appeal of it? Uh, Drugs, 
<laughs> Probably first and foremost. <laughs> uh, to quote C.M. Michael from the New York Times, and as long as there are potheads, waterbeds, and freshman philosophy majors, it will continue to sell thousands of copies every month. <laughs> I think the, the waterbed thing, it must have been the 70s when he wrote that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It did sell over 45 million copies. It's still selling well today. Dark Side of the Moon stayed on the Billboard 200 chart for 741 weeks. There was a period of time Billboard actually changed its rules and didn't allow catalog titles to chart in the 200. But they reversed that rule, and it's since returned to the chart and extending a streak that will probably never be broken. Yeah, most likely not. Spoiler alert, despite the previous statement, neither of us have a song from it in our five. No, we don't. And as much as I admire this album, for some reason, I think just one song from it would seem out of place on the playlist. But it does deserve a little dedicated discussion. So let's keep talking. Yeah, it's an adventurous album, especially for 1973. Dark Side is where this band became fully realized. David Gilmore's playing is on a whole nother level here. The intro, Speak to Me with a Heartbeat, and you don't know it at the time, but there are different sounds you'll hear later on. The laughing, cash register, they all kind of pique your interest as well. What the hell is going on here? Mm-hmm. And the effects on in On the Run, it's hypnotizing. And on a bad trip, I bet it's pretty nightmarish, <laughs> <laughs> especially with a crash at the end and then all the clocks going off when time mm-hmm. starts. Dark Side of the Moon sets an atmosphere and it never stops. It ends with a heart. It ends with a heartbeat, right? It does, yeah. Yep. It begins and I ends mean, with it. It it ends with a heartbeat just like it began. So you can just keep listening to it over and over. And within this album, there's the beloved space I love to talk about. You know, despite the conflict within the band, there's none in the music. That space gives a listener room for emotion and reflection and it just it creates an experience. And the space isn't all about production either. It's in the writing as well. Yeah, I think that space is what makes the sound of this album so amazing. Mm. It's so genuinely unique. It was recorded at Abbey Road Studios and produced by Alan Parsons, who was a a great producer of music. Dark Side, it addresses themes of greed, death, conflict, mental illness. Within all of that, you can hear the band is still reeling from Sid no longer being there. You're a teenager and you put this on for a deep listen. It will speak to you. And this is probably how it keeps creating new fans. Yeah. With all of that, Pink Floyd has been mostly a solo experience for me. I guarantee if you put this on at a party, a rager, it's going to get quiet. Money's Mm -hmm. probably the only song that won't crash a party. I won't call it fatigue. It just has, it it has its time. And usually for me, it's late at night and, you know, and, if I'm looking for a record, I don't even have to flip. I just go right to the Pink Floyd section. I think, Matt, we've been to some different kinds of parties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Listening to this album isn't for swilling beers and dancing. It's not for ragers. Mm. But I've been in some pretty intense listening environments with other people, and brain damage worked well for the group I was hanging with. Ironic. I've done the Wizard of Oz thing. That's kind of overrated, to be honest. Yeah, how did that get started? I don't have a clue. Somebody just figured out how to throw them on together one day. And Drugs. There are there are moments where there's <laughs> things sync up and it's entertaining to watch. But yeah. I'm sure you could do that with a lot of music and television. Just go sit in a bar that shows movies and plays music. Yeah. And the movies are on silent and you'll see that happen. 
I even think Alan Parsons came out and said that's a load of rubbish. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I do think the album, what you were talking about with drugs earlier, it is something that people experience. It's almost like a cinematic soundscape flows from the speakers. And when it comes around to Eclipse, it feels like credits are rolling. You've got to the end of the album, almost like a story's finished. And even though the album's not conceptual, once that final song plays, it feels like putting a good book down or walking out of a great movie. And I have to admit, it's generated those types of emotions in me. All right, so let's not have a Pink Floyd episode of the Jam. <laughs> it's overdue, though. It, we haven't really hit on some of their stuff. Yeah, as no, much no as that's true. That's people true. would have liked us too. But there's some more stuff that's gone on in 1973, and somebody out there who doesn't like Pink Floyd is probably ready for us to get moving. <laughs> so that's fine. I understand. We're we're going to talk about Elvis. Elvis broadcasts a worldwide satellite concert. Aloha from Hawaii in 1973. Full-on Vegas jumpsuit Elvis. You gotta love it. You can't even get a newscast without it breaking up. Somebody from 60 miles away and Elvis yeah. was able to... <laughs> <laughs> yep, he was on tape delay in the States because of, well, you know, the Super Bowl. Yes, yep. Amazingly yep. so. <laughs> but still, uh, they had a goal. They were going to raise $25,000 for the Kui Lee uh, Cancer Fund. But it ended up tripling that amount. No surprise. And after all of those years, this is 1973, he still had the audience eating out of the palm of his hand. And this is not a small show. Um, w- one of my favorites of his is the Moody Blue album. I brought one of his songs to my five off that album. Yep. Aloha from Hawaii has that big showcase sound he had in that era. I it It's a good performance. Yeah. He had just come out of performing, I believe, with this band in Vegas at that time. So yes. he had a massive stage show in Vegas. And yeah, I I guess it did very well, especially in the Asian countries. Yes, it did. The uh, biopic of Elvis with Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker, that's a good watch, too. Mm -hmm. I just saw that the other day. Moving on from Elvis, there were some big debuts in 1973. We could dedicate a whole show to that Barry Manilow. (laughs) (laughs) You you had Barry Manilow (laughs) 1, followed by Barry Manilow 2 in 1974. Does this guy think he's Led Zeppelin? <laughs> Fortunately, I he, that was probably as high as he could count. So we never got to get a Barry Manilow 3. Led Manilow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't need Led Manilow. But there was also Leonard Skinnerd. Freebird! <laughs> yeah. Somebody's going to have to yell out Freebird from the back of the room, aren't they? Play some Freebird. Let, let me ask you, Matt. Did every band play Freebird back in the 70s and then they stopped and then people started calling for it? Because it seems like no matter, you sent me a YouTube clip this week of (laughs) different people, different artists on stage and people yelling Freebird from the audience. You know, Eddie Vedder was like, the Eddie Vedder one was great. Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's almost become a form of heckling. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, or somebody just wants to be the center of attention. Why, you know, to do it right, you have to wait for that proper lull in the crowd noise. Uh, it's like the wave. Somebody's going to do it. I've done my share of bashing Skinner over the years. And to be honest, my patience for Southern rock in general is slim, but I had a good chance to dive into it this week. Obviously, I was sending you clips, <laughs> but uh, not only Skinner's debut album, but uh, the Allman Brothers and a solo from Greg Allman. Mm-hmm. It, 
it's just guitar rock we poked fun at way back in version 1975. It's got its place, and you always find something like this at a certain age. And it stays with you either for a little bit or it stays with you for your whole life. Uh, for me, it was just for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a new respect for that monster live recording of Freebird, though. You tell a guitarist to fill time, you may as well grab a beer and relax and put your feet up. The solo in Freebird is one of the most famous of all time. The endurance, the solo for that long, it's actually kind of impressive when I was watching it and thinking about hand cramps and all <laughs> yeah. of that. <laughs> and there are moments where you feel like he's going to wrap it up. Oh, but the roller coaster picks back up again. In fact, the whole first part of that song, the pretty part, it's like the first climb on a roller coaster. In Freebird, it does take you on a ride. I can see how people would lose their minds seeing this performed live. And on drugs. <laughs> well, I think a lot of this music in 73 was enjoyed that way. Yeah. That solo was actually written into the song after the audience wasn't responding well to that first part of the ride. The, the first half of that song, before it picks up and goes into the solo, was how they went out and performed it for quite a while. And then they added the guitar solo in so that Ronnie Van Zant could have a vocal rest. You sent a YouTube video to me this week that was explaining some of the recording of that, and it blew my mind because I always thought that this was multiple guitar players playing this song, and it was really one guitar player. I, I feel bad I should know his name if I'm going to come to this episode and say it, but we'll yeah. breeze past it. <laughs> and I love how there's a natural delay effect in it when the guy in the YouTube video tried to emulate the guitar solo originally, he wasn't able to do it because he was too technical and he knew the notes and he knew what he was going to play. And then when he went back and he thought about it, he realized, wait a minute, the original guitar player when he laid this track down was improving. And because he was improving, when he went back to re-record the solo over it, he had to do it by memory the second time around. And when you do that, you're going to stay a millisecond behind, you know, a couple yep. milliseconds behind. So you're going in the right direction. So that was really cool. I've always referred to this entire song as a locomotive. And it just chugs along at the beginning until it gets up to speed. And then once the guitar solo kicks in, the <laughs> engine rips wide open. The whistle is blowing and the conductor has his head out the window screaming, ye fucking ha! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we also had a debut from Queen. They Ooh. announced their arrival with that opening riff of Keep Yourself Alive. Brian May is already Brian fucking May. Yeah. Even in this debut, they're already showing the trademark flair they'd become known for. Queen debuted with a very solid first album, and you're absolutely right about Brian May. His signature guitar sound makes itself known right away. Mm. Another debut didn't work out quite the same for me, though. And, and they've taken a pounding from us in this show, and they're going to get another one today. And this would be Aerosmith. This album didn't sound the way I expected it to. I think when we get back to some of the earlier years on the show, we can sometimes get albums that would have been demos today. We, we go through varying opinions about how the earlier music's the best music that an artist can put out. But then you run into some artists who do grow and mature over the years and this was not the, the, the putting out the best music in their first <laughs> album no it, it to me it did sound a lot more like a like a demo album a lot of classic rock bands i think got better after their first few albums yeah this album just sounds terrible 
<laughs> despite all that, it, it's got good songs on it. Obviously, yeah. Dream On and Mamakin, uh-huh. they'll, they're great songs. They'll always be great songs. Steven Tyler just didn't, he hadn't found his voice yet. I don't know what he was reaching for. I've kind of heard him make some allusions as to what he was reaching for, but he fell short of the mark. Uh, there's a distinct change in his voice going forward, though. Yeah, I messaged you this week and I said, oh, I listened to this and it just sounds funny. And uh, Mamakin, what's wrong with that? You brought up the point that, well, we've probably heard live versions of it more so than this album. And and you're exactly right, because I went and listened to a live version. What are you trying to sound like this? Yeah, he does. (laughs) I don't get it. And then even though this wasn't the debut album, I consider it the debut album. And that is Billy Joel's Piano Man. And so the only reason why I consider it his debut album is because when he recorded his first album before this, a, a few years earlier, his producer manager had it mastered and had it mastered at the wrong speed. Billy Joel sounded like he was singing falsetto and Billy Joel wanted the album remastered and the manager refused to let it happen. <laughs> So that the real Billy Joel that the world got introduced to was right here in 1973. And I got to tell you, Matt, I am fatigued by the title track, Piano Man. I, I don't think I can listen to this song casually anymore. Maybe if I'm really drunk at a bar and everybody's singing along, I could join in just for the sheer giggle. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. And I remember as a kid being so proud of knowing all the lyrics to it. I could sing it from beginning to end. Yeah, it's great. Yep. And now I'd rather slam my hand in the door than have to sit through it again. <laughs> and it's no offense to Billy Joel fans. I'm still down with a lot of his music. We talk a lot about his stuff in the 80s. But I'm just going to request, please don't play Piano Man around me. It's nine o'clock on a Saturday. Regular crowd shuffles in. Come on, Jim, let's have a single. I'm finding a door to slam my hand into. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, but you know what we do have in 1973? What? We've got country music. Yeehaw. Yeah, there is country music from 1973 that I remember. We had Charlie Rich behind closed doors. I got to giggle even when I say that. I, I think I learned more about good old making whoopee from country music as a kid growing up into the seventies than anywhere else. The lyrics to this song are, are, are hilarious. And don't get me wrong. I love this song. It's on my big, long playlist of music that I like to listen to, but I can't help but laugh a little inside when he sings, you know, and she makes me glad that I'm a man. Oh, no one knows what goes on behind closed doors. I think we had a pretty good idea, buddy. <laughs> Wait, they're just playing Twister, right? Oh, yeah, that's it. Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> the, the corny crooning, it doesn't help the giggle factor. No. But I love this song, too. I added the most beautiful woman in the world on our Thanksgiving country special. Those two songs helped that album, Behind Closed Doors, win the CMA Award for Album of the Year. Mm-hmm. The song, Behind Closed Doors, was CMA's single of the year and charlie rich was best male vocalist wow. plus a grammy for best male country vocal performance <laughs> that's kind of a word salad for best singer yes isn't it? It is. <laughs> and uh in 2006 cmt ranked behind closed doors number 37 on its list of 40 greatest albums in country music oh so corny yeah but it's yeah hella good music yeah man. it's still great stuff and, and then we had uh, helen reddy with delta dawn even though i was only one in 1973 I think this was the song that was everywhere. We talk about songs that you remember because they were just everywhere at the time. 
my dad used to record my brother and I and our cousins on cassette. And some years back, I found a recording of us singing it. My version was gibberish because I was like one or two <laughs> years old. And, yeah. and, and I know the Tanya Tucker version, and that scored as a country hit a, a year earlier. But Helen Reddy took this song worldwide. It was a massive hit, not just in the USA, but all, all not just in the USA, but also in the UK and in other countries around the world. Delta Dawn was a busy song. Bette Midler gave it a go in 72 as well. And speaking of Tanya Tucker, she swung for the fences early on in her career. Delta Dawn was on her debut album, and she was only 13. Wow. In 1973, she followed that up with another hit, Blood Red and Going Down. She was blessed with a voice beyond her years. And then we had a couple country legends, Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn. They, they had a lot of hits together. Mm -hmm. But this one in particular, Louisiana Woman and Mississippi Man, I found a version of this song performed by Trey Twitty and Taylor Lynn, their grandchildren. Wow. They're actually touring together now. It, there are a few times where you can hear Loretta in her voice. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that was a great song. And that's got a real good upbeat country feel to it. It yes. you know, stands apart from the other ones that we talked about. So one of the things we rarely do on this show, we dedicated an entire episode of Christmas music. And I think like five people listened to it because everybody was worn out on Christmas. We released it after Christmas. <laughs> two we of those so were stupid. you and me. Yeah. <laughs> like we really should have been like, let's release this two weeks before Christmas so that people will listen to it. No, we, yeah. <laughs> we waited until like the 27th to put out a Christmas episode. So I just want to go on record to say, that 1973, the greatest rock and roll Christmas songs of all time came out. And that was Slade's Merry Christmas, Everyone, and Wizard, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. Amazing that these songs both came out in the same year. I don't care if it's Christmas music. We can talk about Slade anytime. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if, it, if it weren't for the lyrics, you'd never know it was a Christmas song. Besides this song, they only have a compilation out in 73, so... If you like the Quiet Riot songs that they covered, go go check there them out. There you go. Yep. Um, <laughs> Wizard has a release, though. Roy Wood was a co-founder of ELO, and you can hear elements of that with the strings, the horns, and the woodwinds. It's a little out there, though. He was obviously bored with what ELO was doing. He had to, he had to go on the weird road <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> and then 1973 still has some incredible R&B. Al Green had me grooving this week i found it at the right moment when i just needed something smooth and chilled out yeah i had a three-hour train ride this week and i listened to the, both those al green albums they were fantastic to travel to just staring out the window watching the countryside pass by al green come on he just made it a smoother ride he released two albums in 1972 as well so i think these were the finest moments of his era of soul music dominance yeah, t time melted away while I listened to them. Then Ike and Tina Turner came in like a shot of espresso. Even when they go down tempo, Tina Turner always gives an exciting, soulful performance. She can sing about popcorn to me any day. And on the day I know you probably thought that was a weird song to send to you, but I was digging it. And on the day you sent it to me, I had to message back and say, Matt, are you celebrating 420? Yes. <laughs> it was that day. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll have to say, you humbled me a little bit when it came to Tina Turner this week. Because I always thought that Ike was the musical genius and wrote most of the music. And I know he was considered a great guitar and player. And he is. He and, is. And we don't really talk about Ike on this show. We like to avoid people who are dicks. And he falls into that category. <laughs> but you messaged me back straight away. And you said, go look at the credits of this album. And 
from this album, Tina had actually, you know, done half the tracks from the other album as well. She'd written half the tracks. And I, I started looking through Tina Turner out songs that she'd written and she only wrote up until about 1978 or 1979. And then she stopped, but apparently at some point it, Ike did recognize Tina's talent and about 1967, 1968, he started encouraging her to write more songs for them. And so she had more and more input into what they were doing and what they were performing on stage. Uh, I think it created the Tina Turner that we, we really kind of got to know and fall in love with. I wonder how much of those were gifts from Ike, too. You know, I talked in a, another episode about James Brown giving the writing credit to his wife oh, and daughters. True, true, So true. that, you know, if the tax man came around, then maybe the money wouldn't have to be paid out, you know, separately. However, it really did seem that Ike sincerely wanted Tina to write songs. And that's that's the world I want to live in. And it, me, too. And, uh, you know, I, I know that he was a terrible man to her and they had terrible problems. But I'd like to believe that maybe if there's one thing about him that was redeeming was that he respected her talent and he recognized that. And that's why he asked her to have a hand in the songwriting of their music. And then keeping in with the R&B, I stumbled onto one of the most iconic bass lines of all time, the OJs for the love of money. And a little further into the record, now that we found love, which found new life in the 90s with Heavy D. Oh, yeah. And then another song that found life in the 90s was Killing Me Softly with his song, uh, Roberta Flack. Yeah. She had such a big hit with it. I never knew that when she did it, it was a cover, but she made that. That's her song now. Oh, it definitely became her song. I didn't realize that... Uh... The OJs had Now That We Found Love. I didn't see that this week. I'm going to have to go back and give that a listen. And yeah, definitely that bass riff for, for the love of money is an iconic one. Okay, Matt, before we get to our five, get yourself a drink. <laughs> one more artist had a mammoth year in 1973, and that was Elton John. So what I would like you to do is tell us how much you love Crocodile Rock. <laughs> fucking hate that song man <laughs> i fucking hate it <laughs> jesus wind me up and let me go <laughs> you're, you're right elton john was having a big year uh, goodbye yellow brick road don't shoot me i'm only the piano player he's a legendary performer i i have a list of songs and people probably think it's like really long but it's a, it's a pretty short list <laughs> i would love to buy the rights to only so that I could have the power for them never to be played again somehow, some way. <laughs> and I don't mind novelty songs, but this song is just trash. Uh, it's those that la 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 la. It's it, don't you do it? Don't you do it? <laughs> you sang <laughs> Piano song. Man to me. Come on. <laughs> it's like nails on a chalkboard. Yeah. Now you sound like a Muppet though. <laughs> That's so does he. You know. You know. Maybe if the Muppets did it, I wouldn't have minded it so much. I bet you they probably did. Maybe we should find the Muppets doing Crocodile Rock. There's probably a, a Muppet Crocodile in it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to the Muppets a little bit later, actually, in the show. La 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 la. <laughs> Well, be Sweetums doing it. Yeah. Bernie Tappan, he was Elton John's lifelong songwriter, collaborator, and lyricist. And he's even stated that, well, he's not unhappy with the song that he wrote as far as the lyrics went. It was nothing that he'd personally choose to listen to. So I like that. He knows he wrote crap. Me either, Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> but he and Elton, they were writing classics. Daniel, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, Candle in the Wind. Penny and the Jets, man. And I'm not a big Elton John fan, 
but I can show some respect for putting out those classic songs in 1973. We just, Matt, we got to be thankful that Crocodile Rock didn't ruin everything for us. <laughs> I don't know about that, dude. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I remember hearing this at a young age and I didn't mind it because, you know, I'm young and dumb, but <laughs> I didn't know who sang it. But hearing his music as I got older and then making that connection, it kind of did make me think less of his other stuff for quite a while. Well, somebody out there is now saying, well, now you're old and dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not wrong. <laughs> All right. It's time to get to our five. We need to do this. 1973, I believe I chose 1973, didn't I? Yep, you did. I did. Sorry, I had an itch in my ear. No, that's fine. That's probably my <laughs> crocodile rock singing, actually. <laughs> So, yeah, it's that fucking earworm you put in yeah, there. Yeah, it is. All right. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to start with a, a great song, 1973, Led Zeppelin's Over the Hills and Far Away. I like a lot of Zeppelin songs, but this is a top three to five song for me. Somebody said, name your top five songs, depending upon the day. The way it transitions from acoustic to hard rock is exactly what Zeppelin was for me. And it's all captured really well in this recording. There's something about the way they could also capture rhythmically between Bonham's drums, John Paul Jones's bass, and Jimmy Page just stroking the muted strings, doing the chunka, 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 that synced better than anything else in rock music. It had its own sound. You would know if you just heard a little part of that song, a snippet, that that's who they were. After Houses of the Holy... I get a little lost in my love for Zeppelin and I tend to prefer, you know, the earlier albums, this kind of going backwards, but over the hills and far away is still going to always be right up there for me as a favorite of theirs. Yeah. This is one of those ones I don't hear enough to get fatigued with me, but when that song finally kicks in, Oh boy, it's pretty tight. That riff, that riff and the drums are really tight. Yeah. I don't think you hear it too much because you can't go cover this on stage. The way it opens mm. with the acoustic guitar and the way that's played and then the transition over to it kicking in with that rock riff, it, it's just not going to happen. So Yeah, and Plant wrote some really good lyrics for it too this time. <laughs> Surprisingly. <laughs> it was not about the Hobbits this time. <laughs> yeah, it's not about Gandalf. <laughs> yes. All right, what's your first song from 1973? I'm going to go with a little bit of reggae and Bob Marley, Get Up, Stand Up. Nice. I'll start off with an honorable mention to stir it up because I love that song too. Uh, there's just a lot going on in the world now where this song is more important than ever and I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> Matt, <laughs> Matt's not going to go too far with that statement, but I, nope. I get what you're saying. But it's a great song. I know exactly where you're coming from because one of my favorite lyrics of all time comes from this song. And that lyric is, you can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And that is Legendary Bob right there. You know, it, there are people out there who are operating things from behind the curtain and they're fooling people, but they're not going to fool everybody. And I'll step down off the soapbox now as well. <laughs> you had it longer than I did, so I don't Sorry. mind. <laughs> That's good. All right. What's your second song? My second song for the week is going to be Paul Simon's Love Me Like a Rock. So here we are with the Muppets in 1980. <laughs> More Muppets. <laughs> yeah. In 1980, Paul Simon was promoting uh, his movie One Trick Pony, and he stopped by the Muppet show as a guest star. 
and perform this song at the end of it. I can only guess this is where I found my love for the song. He's joined in the recording with a gospel group, the Dixie Hummingbirds, providing the background vocals. I like the call and return that they do in the song. It, it just it, it sets it up so well. The vocals are a lot of fun. Paul Simon wrote some great songs that had amazing depth, but some of his whimsical songs were really just as good. We have referenced the Muppets more than anything else on the <laughs> show. <laughs> That's how big an impact they had on us. If anybody could have guest starred on Star Wars, we probably would have. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But some of it is because of this thing right here. If someone was up there singing with the Muppets, we loved it. Right? John Denver as well. Yeah. yeah. And I'll give an, it's your song, but I'll give an honorable mention to Kodachrome. No. Yeah. Good shout. That's a great song. <laughs> And as as a side note, what the fuck is it with that album cover? I don't know, man. It's like, uh, like a, it's confusing to me. It, yeah, <laughs> it makes me feel funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It just makes me feel confused. It is confusing. Go, go look at the don't album. Take cover. that the wrong way. It's no, weird. It is. <laughs> All right. What is your next song? Abba, ring, ring. You will take. Pop music for me when you get it and like it. <laughs> <laughs> ring Ring has everything you want and expect from ABBA. Expertly crafted wall of sound type of songs with obviously, again, voices, brilliant vocal pairing of Frida and Agnetha. Ring Ring finished third in Sweden's national final entry for Eurovision in 73, but they made up for it the next year. Oh, yeah, they did. They won <laughs> the next year. <laughs> yeah. This song definitely has a throwback to the 50s vocal bands with a little bit of surf guitar and, and surf drums tossed in. I liked that. And it was definitely pre-disco ABBA. This is their time just before they kind of break out. The same way the Bee Gees did. You know, the Bee Gees were known for mm -hmm. kind of a, a, a folksy, acoustic, rocky music. And then they went into the disco era and... ABBA and the Bee Gees, look at what they did. Oh, yeah. But it still has their signature sound. You're correct with those harmonies. It's a great debut from them. And the album was originally credited to Bjorn and Benny, Agnetha, and Frida. Frida's real name is Anna Free. I just found this out this week. Jim was this week old. You <laughs> take those names and you get ABBA. ABBA. Yeah. All righty. So what is your third song? All right, so my third song is going to be, well, you talked about him earlier in the show. It is Jim Croce, I Have to Say I Love You in a Song. And it sounds like we could have both possibly picked one of his songs for our five this yes. week. When I was first learning how to play guitar, this was one of the very first songs I went to. It captures everything that was perfect about his sentimental songwriting sound. We get a lot of amazing singer-songwriters in the 70s, but Jim Croce had a tone in his voice that to me was the most comforting. It just makes me feel at home inside. It, he centers me whenever I'm listening to his music. Th that's what it is about his music. It's in a range where just about anybody can sing along. And it's just honest lyrics that make it relatable. He wrote from the heart and that's where his songs hit. Yeah. Oh, definitely. That is where they hit. All right. Your next song, what's it going to be? All right, my next song is Marvin Gaye, Let's Get It On. <laughs> well, you're not really my type, Matt, but, you know, the song sets the mood. <laughs> and if, if it's going to happen, it better be this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Ow. <laughs> <laughs> Marvin Gaye is so smooth. The, the top comment on the YouTube clip I watched for this is someone quoting their father. Marvin Gaye is responsible for millions of lives. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> Between this and sexual healing, there's been a oh, yeah. lot of babies made to Marvin Gaye <laughs> music. That's great. That's great. Well done, Marvin. All right, Jim, what is your next song? Okay, so my next song is going to be Gladys Knight and the Pips, and the song is Leaving on a Midnight Train to Georgia. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a pip. Their type of song and dance performance, it just seemed like it had so much class. And then Gladys has one of the smoothest voices of her generation, but there's a blend of sultry scratchiness and a tone that was really beautifully unique. I think Gladys and the Pips took that style of singer and backups from the 60s, 50s, and 60s into the 70s without making it seem like it was old news. And the Pips weren't just parroting what Gladys is singing. There's kind of like, it's not a call and answer, but there's definitely a give and a take there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got their own thing going on in backing her. They, again, just with, just like with Marvin Gaye, this is a smooth, smooth song. Yeah. And I'm very happy to have more R&B from the 70s on the place. It's nice to have it there. Yeah, it is. Okay, give us your next one. I'm going to go with Hall and Oates and She's Gone. Mm. I always lose sight of how old this song and by relation how old I am, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> All the other songs in my vibe this week took longer to come into my life, but She's Gone, it seems like it's been there forever, as long as I can remember. Yeah, I agree. I've known Hall and Oates my entire life, but I think... Their huge success in the 80s made it hard for me to believe that this came from 1973. Oh, you know what? You're probably right. Yeah. It, it, it's such a good song. And the album, it sets a pace for them for an incredible career. It's so good. All right, Jim. What is your fifth song and final one for 1973? All right. Well, when we were you know, passing notes back and forth this week, I forgot I was going first. And so the notes I wrote were based on me having this song last, but I'm not going to give away your song. (laughs) So I've got to improv this a little bit. Bear with me, people, because I wrote this based upon what Matt's next song is going to be. And this is Stevie Wonder's Don't You Worry About a Thing. I really want to talk about Intervisions. I could spend as much time as we talked about Pink Floyd earlier in the show talking about the Stevie Wonder Intervisions album. Because yeah, it's this is just, going off on a high note. It's just as incredible. And there's we talk about great music coming out in 1973. This album was a desert island album for me. And don't you worry about a thing. Just reminds me every day to keep my head up. Life is gonna have adversity, but it'll always find a way to work itself out if we're patient. This also musically, it has fantastic vocal melodies i love the way he descends on the word thing in the chorus when he does the thing oh yeah that dissension sing that yeah it's just so smooth so nice so sweet sounding the the chorus is incredible the whole album is incredible and this is exactly why i'm glad we stopped here in 1973 yeah, and this is a great song, and it's from an album with Higher Ground. And if anybody says that's overplayed, 
them's fighting words. Uh, we'll be right there. We'll, we'll be, we're coming over. <laughs> yeah. And yes, Stevie Wonder is the icing on the cake of 1973. Ah, oh, this album great is song. great. So, Matt, I didn't give anything away. What's your next no. song? Yeah, 1973. <laughs> well, I'm going to... I'll finish off with a little guy called Stevie Wonder. <laughs> All is fair in love. Three words. Four words. It's fucking Stevie Wonder. Yeah, it is. <laughs> We've talked enough about these early 70s years of his music being amazing. There's a four album span starting with Talking Book. Maybe even five with music on my mind if you want to go back another one where he can do no wrong. If this were made today, they would overdo the production and lose that dynamic magic and bury some of the most powerful lyrics in his music. G- great song. In- Intervision. Uh, this is probably my favorite album that I've got to listen to this week. And he's, I, I, I can't think of another one that would have surpassed it. And Stevie's playing almost every instrument on the album. Yes. Which is, <laughs> yeah, which is incredible. But just so people know, actually, Matt's song, All is Fair in Love, is back to back with my song, yeah. Don't You Worry About a Thing. So it goes that yeah. way in order. And yeah. and they both follow up after Higher Ground, which is fantastic. He's Mr. Know-It-All there. I mean, I could just go. Oh, yeah. Uh, on and on about the album <laughs> we, we could have honorable mentions and just have it be about stevie wonder yeah we could just put intervisions on the playlist <laughs> yeah we, we should probably do that and and so now that we've gotten to the end of the show it's my guess that we're going to take all the tracks off of dark side of the moon and put them on yeah. the playlist as promised <laughs> no no we don't need to do that no. I, I, I no not at all uh but thanks for the ticket to uh 1973 jim there's a lot left on the cutting room floor the listeners would know it all if we would just would go to click 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 you know, <laughs> name 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 after name uh but lots of great stuff too much to cover and that's why there's the internet dive into 1973 and you won't be sorry no you definitely won't be but what we need to find out is whether we're going to be happy or sorry with where you're going to take us next, Matt. The years are <laughs> limited, so we still have years available in every decade. So I think you should uh, take us someplace where you feel like the heart leads you. Well, we'll find out if my heart leads me there or not. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these years in the 2000s have been a little dicey lately. But uh, I think I've decided that we're going to go to 2017. and. We got to end up on a high note on some of these 2000s years eventually. We had a good run in the late 2000s, so maybe this will be the start. I thought 2016 was going to be that start. Maybe it's 17. Okay, that sounds good. No, 2017 will be cool because we've also had that continuing conversation about when music shifted at the end of that decade and trying to find where that came from because we know when alternative music shifted everything and grunge popped out in 1991 there were earlier bands i mean jane's addiction nine inch nails that had albums that kind of paved the way for that so we're trying to dig and find where this began and find where that music shift hit in 2020 i think or somewhere from there it's it's got to be here somewhere it's got to be there somewhere somebody's going to write an article about it one day and we're going to be like, we were, yeah, we were right. Exactly. (laughs) And you know, we did find some songs in 2016. So maybe that was just the start of the curve going up in 17. Maybe it'll be partway there. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. (laughs) Because I can't have another 2007, 2016, 2006, 13. 13. That's a bad luck number. We should have known better. Wow. Well, 
it wasn't as bad as six and seven. No, it was not. <laughs> All right. So it's my turn to wrap it up this week. Wrap it up. I'll take it. I'll take it. We want to thank everybody for tuning in to the Jam Yearbook once again. If you're listening to this on your favorite podcasting app, be it Spotify, Apple, anything like that, please, we never ask this. Give us five stars. Give us a like, a thumbs up, whatever those things are that are in there that show that you listen to the show because it helps draw other people to us, and we'd really appreciate that. When people are searching algorithms for music history shows and you've done that for us, it helps us find new listeners. We do this show without any commercials. We do it without any advertisements, without any subscriptions. We do this because it's a passion for us, and we're happy every single week to be here. But we'd love to bring more people. So, yeah. yeah. And, and hit that download button. You can delete it afterwards. <laughs> yeah, it still exactly. counts. It gives us a play. We are happy to <laughs> exactly. have Exactly. <that>. All <laughs> right, everybody. Matt, say good night to the good people of the Jam Yearbook. Well, good night, and thank you, everybody, for listening to the Jam Yearbook, and we will see you here next time for version 2017. Peace, love, and podcast. Peace.